You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome all you weirdos, Krakoan refugees, and everyone who hopes their mutant power turns out to be the ability to thaw a 25-pound turkey in seven minutes. It is time to receive an overstuffed Thanksgiving edition of your 73rd Weird Dose of X, the mutant member of your Weird Science family of podcasts. I'm your host, Jason, having returned from sunny Florida back home to the Wrong Turn Studio, which is perched high atop stately Weird Science Tower, and here with me live from a cold, lifeless dimension that is either the inside of the mutant called Abyss, or maybe just the Pacific Northwest, is my amazing friend Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? Yeah, still trying to figure that one out. It's uncertain. Could be either. But um, yeah, in this time of thankfulness, I am thankful that you are back in the hosting seat with all these books this week, and uh, I do not have to you summarize You didn't like them. having the power and all the buttons? No, I got a little out of control, actually. Um, Jim censored me, fortunately. The unedited version of the cast oh, wow. was uh, a little little rough. A little, little blue? Uh, wow. I had some, I, I guess I had some you, I, sharp on... words for you, which were cut out, which oh, made no. me happy. I uh, I guess I'm not a high enough donor to the, uh, the the podcast to get the uncensored edition. Yes. You have to. I don't know what you have to be on the Patreon to get that. <laughs> well, thank you, Ruben, for holding down the fort while I was away, and, and thanks to Matt for stepping in as, as co-host. I I know it's it's no fun to do this thing solo, so it's always no, good it's to terrible. have somebody to chat with. Yep. Uh, we we do have a, a plethora of expos to talk about this week. That's that's right. Six. These are Children of the Vault number four of four. Astonishing Iceman, number four or five, Jean Grey, number four or four, Alpha Flight, number four or five, Dark X-Men, number four or five, and finally, Uncanny Avengers, number four of five. Immortal Thor, also number four, came out this week, and that does feature a lot of Storm. So if you're a big Storm fan, you want to be complete on all the things Storm is up to, you'll want to read that too, but we got enough to worry about. We're not going to talk about that one here. That sound like enough books for today, Ruben? Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of disappointed we didn't add five more books. <laughs> oh, goodness. I mean, some some weeks we would kick some of these the next week, but we figured, you know, Thanksgiving, people need things to listen to. We want to get these off our plate. We don't need any leftovers next week. Uh, so we're going to do them all. But, but first, we have a, a little bit of news to talk about. Marvel announced uh, some titles it's making available for next year's free comic book day, which will be May 4th, 2024. And two of them are relevant to this very podcast. First of those is an Avengers X-Men book with the X-Men section written by Gail Simone. The description of that is, get a glimpse of the future of mankind as Jubilee learns that you cannot go home again. So Ruben, how much do you want to read into this? Do we think Gail Simone is going to be kind of running, architecting the whole next phase of the books? That would be strange. What has she been doing recently? I mean, she, at one point, she was a very prominent writer of a lot of books, and it feels like she's kind of dropped off a bit. Uh, the, the last thing that I remember reading and enjoying from her was a Deadpool run a few years ago, and I thought that was kind of fun. I, I guess I haven't really read a lot of her serious books. I think of the books that Gail Simone writes as popping up and being something kind of, kind of silly, kind of funny, kind of frivolous, which is fine. But that doesn't I, that that's different from like architecting this whole multi book next phase of this giant franchise. So maybe maybe it's maybe she has a whole different side of her skill set that I don't know about. Maybe she's just writing this free comic book day thing and she's not necessarily you know in charge of the whole deal. But you know we're on on the social media and you know people like to make big things out of every little bit of news. So that's what people are making big things about this week. 
I mean, in general, I'm interested in seeing her do more X books. I don't know that I want her to be the showrunner, but I would be happy with her writing like X Force or um, even X Men if that ends up not being the flagship title. Well, we'll certainly check it out. I mean, a lot of questions. Uh, does the go home again thing in the description talk about going back to the old Xavier Mansion? Maybe I don't know what else it could mean. And most importantly. Will this cut into Gail Simone's busy tweeting schedule? Uh, I checked. She's already tweeted more than 50 times this morning. It is, it is pretty funny. as we record. Is she even on the West Coast? I think she might be on the West Coast, which is even yeah. more impressive. Yeah. Goodness. She's definitely a social media presence more than a, than a comic writer. But everything I don't know. Everything I've read of hers, I think her dialogue is strong. And she does seem to have deep knowledge of characters. But we'll, we'll see. certainly check out that free comic book day book, which will kind of pop up. Like in the middle of that last bit of this era of X-Men, right? All the, the Fothox, Rotpox, all those books will still be happening when we get this little sneak preview of where we might be going next. So the other title of interest for Free Comic Book Day has Dennis Camp, who's the writer of Children of the Vault. He's going to be working in the new Ultimate Universe. This description says, prepare for the next evolutionary step of the Ultimate Universe as a powerful new hero debuts. But it doesn't end there. Oh, no, there are some surprises up our sleeve on this one. Hmm. So in a previous episode, I said that I'd welcome Dennis Camp writing on a, a bigger, more meaningful X book. Having him do something in the new Ultimate Universe, that's that's not bad either. What do you think about that? Yeah, especially after this last issue of Children of the Vaults, I'm sold on this writer. So I'm checking that out. Barring some sort of shockingly bad uh, free comic book day issue, I'm probably subscribing to whatever that ultimate comic is. Yeah, that book's going to be coming out. This free comic book day book will be coming out after the three first new titles. It'll be after those those three books have their uh, their debut. But yeah, we, we like the way he writes and uh, we're going to check that out too. And you know, speaking of Dennis Camp, I think as we go into our actual main part of the podcast, let's start with his book. I'm going to start with Children of the Vault, number four of four, Kill the Future, written by Dennis Camp. Art by Luca Maresca, colors by Carlos Lopez, letters by Corey Pettit, and design by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So I'm going to admit again to a little bit of a bias here. I've said this before, a bias, a quirk, preference. I tend to get really excited about the beginnings of stories, right? I like to, oh, all these possibilities could go anywhere. It could be, this could end up being the best thing ever. And then I'm kind of a little disappointed at the end. You know, it has to pick one way to go. And it kind of closes off all those possibilities, and I get a little disappointed. And as much as I enjoyed this book, Children of the Vault, kind of applies here too. So, Ruben, I get the feeling you're more positive than I am about this issue. Is that yeah, that right? much more positive? I felt like this wrapped up the story intelligently, and it ultimately kind of was just a fun story that doesn't matter, <laughs> which is hard to say. Like you're excited about that, but I was satisfied with the conclusion. I felt like there were some smart kind of story beats and. Um, we, the reader, kind of got to see Dominion and know that it's out there and still in play, but nobody else does, and the children are kind of back in the vault. So, yeah, it's putting this stuff away, but uh, I don't know. The fight, we'll, we'll get into the details, but I'll tell you why Like I ultimately liked yeah. it. We'll, we'll go through it, and, and maybe you can, you can talk me up a little bit here. So, when we left off, Cable was threatening the central AI of the city with a really big gun, because he's Cable. Uh, and Bishop was about to fight Madre, the keeper of the city's crash, all while the children are being distracted by Orcus. So, busy moment there. In this book, we see that at the same time, that psychic virus being spread around the world by the children is entering its next and final stage. That whole, 
happy become the future talk was just a carrier. And now that everyone's infected, it's doing some transformational. What's happening now is that people are starting to get sick and cough up this glowy blue goop, nasty. And if this process completes, I think it said more than 99% of all humans will die and the remainder will be uh, something. Do we know what they're going to be become? Yeah, I don't know, like children themselves or servants or something to that the children will find useful. I, I think it's been left kind of vague. So Cable and Bishop up against a tight time limit here. Things are happening. Yeah, so pause on this really quick. One of the reasons I like this is this whole time I we knew about that statistic, right? Like the message would right. kill most the message, people. But, that's what it's called. But I didn't know how, right? I was like, okay, what the people are just going to have like internal war? Like what's going on? So I was happy that this finally gets answered. Okay, this is what happens, right? A virus gets to stage two and basically I was hoping that insides into the effect would be more tied to the whole mimetic psychic thing, not just, oh, that was the spreading part and now the actual virus effect is just they get sick and die. I was hoping to have more of a connection. Well, okay, moving forward. Last issue, we also saw the children breed up and release a new version of someone called Muerte. We thought that he was the children's version of Oranos, but here he seems just like some sad little kid carrying a bomb. What What do you think his actual powers are? <laughs> well, explodey stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that crystal is. But again, I, I do like the way this, this plays out. To me, this was kind of cool, right? The, the Orgus folks are, you know, their tactical center up in uh, the Reforge, right, on the sun, and they're spewing out all these sentinels and they just kind of like look over their shoulder and there's like some like you said creepy old kid like there it, it yeah there's some dots around him like he teleported in this is teleporting his his deal yeah certainly an ability because the bomb was that that little crystal bomb it looks almost like one of the crystals superman would have in his fortress of solitude uh, but that crystal was handed to muerte by madre last issue so it's not like he creates the bomb i just don't know what his his actual deal is. Yeah. Well, they talked about how he killed a whole bunch of children as well, right? Right. The last time he was around. That's why, and that he, was why he usually hasn't been yeah, part of the, taken out of storage. Exactly. So I can't imagine just like straight teleporter could do that. I don't know. I mean, my sense is- He's, he, he's just- mm -hmm. we're, we're, out of, we're, we're having a little bit of a, I think, a delay here between us, which is why it's sounding a little bit confused. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, go ahead, Ruben, explain it. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe he triggers this crystal, right? Like maybe this is one of his pieces of equipment. I had to pause the sneeze there. Jim, edit that out as well. Yeah, so he's he's interesting in that he's very different than expected. I would have liked a little more explanation over what he does. And it's it's also super convenient that this whole reforge mother mold on the surface of the sun, we only found out about last issue, which again is a huge thing. We had whole arcs of X-Men about you know destroying the, the, the first forge. And now it's come and now it's gone, which is super convenient because no one else needs to explain what happened to the Reforge in any other book because it's already gone. Yeah, he definitely did them a favor. And Morte means death, right, in Spanish. So it seems like death is his thing. Okay, so that's Muerte. Now, back in the city, Cable, who's you know holding the city hostage, is attacked by Capitan. Now, Capitan, you might remember, is the child who had argued against the mind virus plan. He just wanted to kill all humans the old-fashioned way mm -hmm. by killing them. Mm -hmm. uh, the mind virus plan came from Serafina. Cable is about to be murdered to death by Capitan when Bishop rides into the rescue. And things still look bad for our heroes when their actual, actual plan comes to fruition. We had thought that the singularity gun used at the beginning of last issue, we thought that was the weapon that Bishop retrieved from Cable's weapons cache back at the X-Mansion. No, no, no. The real weapon was, 
I don't think I really understand this bit. So, Ruben, maybe you can explain it to me. Yes. Okay. So, this is one of the, this, this is basically, I, I felt like this whole part was super cool. And this is probably why I'm higher on this than you were. And you're just sort of like, I don't know. I don't get it. But the gist is, Cable's a time traveler. We know that, right? And he's saying that in his prior life, like earlier in his life, when he was a younger kid, he went into a future. And in that future, basically, the techno-organic virus had consumed everything and had, you know, actually defeated even a kind of post-human. Is that something we've seen in Cable's backstory? Or is this brand new information? I know he's gone places we haven't seen, but I think it'd be cooler if, oh, yeah, we could point to an issue and say, oh, that's when that happened. Not not in the Hickman era, so I can't say that, you know, I remember this, but I don't know. I'm not the, the authority on Cable. That's a good question, right? Like, have we seen this before? But the gist is he, he went to that future and he collected a sample of the virus. And it's a variant of the virus that he has, right? Like, you, you know that part of his story, right? So basically, when he was a kid, he was infected with this techno-organic virus that consumes both biological matter and technological matter and converts it into the kind of merged entity that Warlock is. And then if you get enough of it, it like forms a Babel Spire and calls down the Technarch from wherever dimensional plane they're in and then they consume. And when Cable the was brought back, we were told that the first thing he asked was, oh, you brought me back with the virus, right? And we were told, yes. So that is a kind of interesting connection here. I did enjoy that. And I and at the time I was like, that's such a stupid thing, right? Like why would you reinfect yourself? Right. It's like how how silly that Cyclops still can't control his eye beams without the mask, without the visor. Yeah. And I've been asking that this whole Krakoa era. I was like, why are these people coming back with their disabilities like in check? So yeah, so basically because he has a different strain of the virus, allegedly he was able to exert limited control over this variant in some future that took over everything. And so he collected a sample and he stored it under the um, the mansion, right? And so I don't remember what issue that was. It was like two or three where Bishop went to go retrieve weapons, quote unquote. He was, yeah, that would have been two. Okay. Yeah. So he apparently was getting a copy of the virus, of, of the you know consume everything virus. And so when Cable is being con- confronted by um, Capitan, and Serafina, you know, he's basically holding the gun right to what looks like a big giant head, which is supposed to be like the central AI of the city. Serafina's like, hey, you idiot, like, go ahead, shoot it, right? Like, our technology is not contained in this, like, head thing, right? Like, this is just something we have to talk to the city, not – it's not the city itself, which I like. Right. I thought that was kind of – yeah, I, I I think we called that out last issue. Like, isn't the intelligence everywhere? I mean, sure, this part is shaped like a head. Yes. But it's not like there's no copy anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, if they're supposed to be hyper-evolved, their technology has to be at least Amazon level, right? It's like AWS. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, have, I have my photos backed up to the cloud. Yes. I'm pretty sure the city's AI is backed up somewhere. So they're just kind of like, whatever, idiot. Like, we're going to take you out. And so, you know, they're beating him up. And then he's like, yeah, I'm not that stupid, right? Like, this whole thing has just been a waste. Of, like, I think he talks to his arm, right? The, the little... Little nurse Betty. Yeah, she pops up and she's giving a countdown and he laughs and he's like, Hey, yeah, of course, of course I know I'm not gonna be able to shoot your your city AI and like disable everything. Like, but I am a you know, basically a virus transmitter. So I brought the virus and this whole time as I've been running around your base shooting at things. Right. There's been like a plan behind a plan behind a plan because they attacked the city directly, but that was to distract it so that Orcas could attack them. But that was to distract it so that Cable could threaten this head 
But that was to distract them so that they, this virus would have time to spread. Yeah, so they just basically okay. ran around all the city and all the technology got infected with it and enough time passed that it started to do its conversion thing, right? So it starts converting everything in the city. Yeah, the techno goo here looks pretty cool and creepy, right? It looks like it's like the cordyceps kind of fungus look to it, but with glowy LEDs on it, which is a nice look. And then they're like, yeah, that's a problem, right? Because he's basically like, yeah, in 24 hours, your whole city, and then the world is going to be consumed by the virus, right? And, he's like, and he reminds them, you know, just the conversion of your technology into this goo stuff is just stage one, right? Like, wait until it, enough of it accumulates that it forms a babble spire and then calls down So, this more is guys. a mutually assured destruction plan, right? Correct. This isn't saving the earth. This is we're all going down together. And, they're, and they remind him of that. And then he's like, yeah, but all the mutants got killed by Orcus and you're now going to kill all the humans, right? So, like, who cares, right? And we're time I, I travelers. I did like that. Yeah. I, I, I did like that, you know, probably Serafina said, no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really do this, would you? But, I mean, it's Cable and Bishop. So, out of all the X-Men characters who would be that hardcore, these are the ones who would go, yeah, they, they'd really go through with this. It's not just a bluff. They're hoping it turns out to be only have to be a bluff, but it's not just a bluff. So, then Serafina's like, hey, idiot, like, we've got records of the Technovarianic virus, right? Like, you've been around and people know about this, right? So, the city's going to be able to formulate a, you know, a way to resist it. Which I thought, okay, cool. That's also interesting, Techno right? Techno antibody, sure. Yeah. So, then he's like, well, that's not our only plan. We've also got Bishop, who was in your crush, and he put all these thermonuclear bombs in there. We didn't see the fight between him and Madre, but apparently Bishop won, knocked out Madre, and left all these 24th century oblivion bombs, which is, you know, they're, they're it's like the eggs almost of the, the Krakoan mutants. It's all these little infant-looking forms inside these, you know, storage units. So, I guess if that blows up, I guess there is no backup for that. Which, again, you'd think you'd have some of your crash in a- Maybe in the vault there is, but also, this this part to me is interesting because if it's 24th century technology, that would be something that the city and the children actually don't know about, right? They've never seen this, unlike having a history record of Cable and knowing that he has this virus, right? It's this technology that they don't exactly know what it does. I don't know what it does, right? It sounds sounds powerful, oblivion bomb. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, this just, I think puts a little bit of doubt into their mind, right? Like, can we overcome both the virus and this crazy bomb? And then I think the final kind of nail in the coffin is Cable's talking to Serafina and says, hey, if you guys are so advanced and, you know, so unstoppable, how come you've never been able to overcome the X-Men? The last two times that you came out of the vault, yeah, right? Yeah, which is a cool meta concept. And this connects to a character named Diamante, right? He's like the children's version of Xylo, that historian member of the Great Ring in Araco, except he's made of diamond and not bugs and worms. So then they start thinking, I think she thinks about it, and it's just so many cards stacked against them and so many variables, and they're just kind of like, okay, you're right. Like, we're not going to... It's just a gamble, right? It's a total bluff. But in poker, sometimes you can just put enough uncertainty into your opponent's mind that they fold, right, when you actually couldn't defeat them. And I think that's kind of what happens here is she she thinks about the odds. And the other thing I was going to say is, if you recall, she actually had insight into the Dominion. So, she knows there's this overarching force that is exerting influence on the current timeline. 
and that it's kind of bigger than her. Gets kind of mentioned tangentially, right? Where she doesn't really tell Cable and Bishop about it, but she kind of hints that there's a thing going on in the background. And and maybe it's the Dominion that's really working against them, that's responsible for the children losing all the time, or maybe it has nothing to do with it. Yeah, but it's enough where I can see like she's thinking about this and she sees all this stuff going down and she's like, what the hell? And I know about and this I Dominion. I would love to hear more about this Dominion in this book, but I guess it makes sense that's not going to actually come to fruition in Children of the Vault. It's going to be in you know, Kieran Gill and stuff going for. So long story short, uh, Cable's like, call her bluff or get your ass back to the vaults. And they decide, okay, fine. We're going to, you know, run back into the into the vault with our tail between our legs, get, you know, this version of the children will get repurposed, right, by the, the overall AI. And the next time we'll see them, they will be a different once again. But this contingency of children has failed and retreated. And then the, the one part that's kind of weak is, you know, this whole time you've been saying, okay, how come none of these like super cities have been referenced or mentioned in any of the other books. And just to put those toys back in the toy box, well, children are back in the vault. So the city stuff falls apart and everything dies. I actually kind of like this bit because it's it's got some real world parallels, but nothing hitting you over the head saying, I'm a good guy and I hate the bad guys. Because it says that all the gifts the children gave to like the poor of the world, they disintegrate. And these are entire cities. Like not just clothing and VR things, but whole whole cities, and we're told that the emissions from this process are themselves completely toxic. So all these great gifts that they thought they were getting from the children are just more poison. Which kind of refers to when we first saw that kid Rodrigo, I think, in the first issue, when the children appeared to him, he was you know playing in toxic, polluted waters that had been polluted by regular human technology. And then he and his whole world were saved and then unsaved. So, yeah, that was, it, it gives you some things to think about. I kind of like that. Interestingly, I mean, there's conversations, I think, when Cable and Seraphine are talking where he's like, your message is basically just smallpox blankets, right? And he's being critical of that. It's like, you know, oldest, <laughs> oldest war weapon in the book, right? It's not as advanced as you think it is. You're doing the exact same thing that, you know, historic figures did. And he does the same thing, right? Like kind of the same thing with his virus, just spreading a virus and wiping out a population that way. And then we kind of get yeah, this again. It's very similar. So uh, yeah, the, it all kind of goes away kind of quick and easy for me, right? I, we thought it was this big world-changing thing, and then everything just resets. The, the, the mother mold and the sun is gone. The cities are gone. The children are pretty much right back to their status quo ante, right? It was they're back where they were at the beginning, and nothing's really changed for them. Sure, when they come out again, they will have come up with some way to defeat this virus. I guess the virus actually goes away, so we even need to defeat the virus. There's a They're th just kind of I'd put back in the box. I'd say there's a bit more of a threat because now we don't have the the Black Mercy tech thing that Forge put together, right? Like that's down, so their VR simulated world doesn't exist. Right. They're, they're not being handled. They're just choosing to go away, and they can come out again whenever they want to. And they get thousands of years of like hypertime evolution, right? So it seems like they could come out pretty soon. I don't yeah, know. It, any, it, any time another writer wants to do it, they can say however much time passed as they want to. Yes. But I did like that they did plant that idea of that that underlying flaw. That's gonna live in Seraphina's mind like for, for generations. That's not something that's gonna go away. Well, that, that would be the reason I think that they might stay away for a little bit, right? They're gonna try to figure out what the heck that flaw happens to be and can we evolve past it. Yeah, so let's talk about now about 
the question we've been laughing about every time is, how can this be happening in the same world as all these other books? And I think it's pretty clear now that the answer is, this whole series takes place after the gala, sure, but before the number ones of any of the other Fall of X books, right? In that X weeks later gap. Yeah, super, super compressed timeline. So that kind of explains why no one of those other books mentions the existence of the children or these cities. But you'd still think that some of them would say, hey, that was a crazy thing that just happened. Now the children were here and gone. It's it, comic books. I can, I can overlook that. I, I do wonder where Bishop and Cable go after this book. Like, Where are they in the current timeline of all these other titles? Any, any guesses there? Where, do we think we're going to show up again in Fall of X? Seems like they could, right? Like They can focus on Orcus at this point. But I mean, they should be involved in something. Now they don't have to deal with the children. Bishop had that whole list of these Orcus facilities he wanted to take out, right? And then that got interrupted. He, he, that's why he got Cable. He thought Cable was going to help him check items off his list. They got distracted by the whole children deal. So you'd think they'd now go back to going down that list and maybe they're going to run into the rest of the X-Men or the Uncanny Avengers or probably not Ms. Marvel. I would think but that Cable maybe, maybe would show up somewhere. Cable would probably be looking for hope. That's his thing, right? So now he's got the children okay. out of the way. Like, what happened to her? As soon as he gets a hint that nobody's dead, right? Maybe that's why he's not going to do it immediately. But there will be some point right. where he I realizes- mean, Some people are dead, but not the millions and millions that Correct. they think are dead. Yeah. Maybe they'll cross over with X-Force. I mean, Cable and X-Force, that's certainly a, a thing. Yeah, that's right. They have existed in the past. Oh, last thing I'll say is I really liked, in this series, I really liked the Cable-Bishop dynamic. I thought Dennis Camp did a really great job with- Yes, very strong. Even in this issue, when, you know, a lot of this is just a poker bluff, right? Like, as I, as I said, but I thought it was well done where Seraphine is like, you wouldn't do this. And he's like, I'll, you know, I'll work with anyone to achieve like, victory, even the devil himself. And then he's like, and here's Bishop. <laughs> it's like, even showing shade at Bishop that way, right? Like, but I yeah, like it. He called right? him the devil himself in a previous issue, so that's even a direct callback to a thing. And again, I don't, I don't. I guess that's the question: Is it a bluff? And I don't, I don't think it is. Yeah. I think they're hoping that they don't have to do it. But I think, I think Bishop would push that button. I think Cable would stand by and, and watch, you know, the the techno organic spire go up and, and the world end. Yeah, that Bishop line was badass too, where he's like, when they're like, you wouldn't kill babies, would you? And he's like, you don't know what I would do. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to think I wouldn't, but, but yeah, I would. Yeah, I was like, oh, you're a cold, cold mf okay, so dude. Yeah, you've, you've made me feel a little more positive about this. I still think it's kind of a rushed conclusion to a pretty strong book. I, I like the connections. I like the characters. But yeah, I was hoping for more outcome of this that lingers forward into the rest of the X-Men world where none of the books ever need to reference this. I mean, sure, some writer in the future can bring out the children again, but no one, no other writer needs to know this happened, which is kind of a shame. That's true. That's true. I mean, newish writer, right, to the X-Universe, and maybe they just didn't allow him to Certainly do something makes big. Sense that would happen. I should have expected that. I, I mostly did, but it was so cool and so well written and so exciting. I was hoping that, oh, maybe this really matters to the big picture. But of course, you know, this guy writing a, a weirdo side book and fall of act, it's not going to be the main thing. It is cool they mentioned the Dominion because that is going to be something huge in this series. So it's nice that he got to fit that in in a neat way. But yeah, we'll see that play out in, in Kieran Gill and stuff. The art here, I really looks great. The techno organic goop, all the all these kind of crazy children of the vault characters look nice. 
uh, their emotions are, are clear and the action is you know crisp and easy to follow. So lots of credit to Luca Moresco for that. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what Dennis Camp does in the Ultimate Universe. And I'm going to give Children of the Vault number four a, uh, well, let's bump that up to a 7.8 out of 10. Nice. Yeah. I'm at 8.5. Not five. my favorite book of the week, but uh, but, but a good book. 8.5 for you. 8.5. This is by far my favorite book this week, but um, everything you say is a fair criticism. I'm, I'm more excited about, um, well, first of all, he did a great job with a set of villains that I really like, right? Um, I thought he did them justice. And he also really, I thought, captured the voice of Cable and Bishop really well. Way better than we've seen even in like the Bishop War College story in my mind. For sure. Yeah. If you're a fan of either Cable or Bishop or the both of them, you're really going to enjoy this book. Yeah. Because you think about that, that War College, right? Like that first issue is solo featured Bishop, right? And it was just Bishop yelling at kids for like the it whole was. issue. <laughs> I have a bunch of panels clipped out from that of just his spittle flecked face just screaming at children and it's because it's funny. But did he seem like like a cold dude in that? Like to me, it was just seemed like an annoying jerk, right? And this one really reminded me of like, oh yeah, he's actually kind of a- He's competent. Right. A tough, badass like guy you don't want to mess with and also kind of evil. Okay. So, I liked all that. And then- you know, I'm always excited to find new writers that get you excited, right? So, like I said, I will absolutely, I will definitely check out his Ultimate Universe story. And until he proves to me that you know maybe he's not as good as I think he is, I'm you know he's on my authors to check out list for now. Okay, so that was Children of the Vault. That was a, a pretty good. You know, when we read the whole list of these crazy miniseries that are going to happen in Fall of X, we didn't know what Children of the Vault was going to be, and it turned out to be pretty good. So uh, that was fun. Moving on to another one of those miniseries, this is Astonishing Iceman number four of five, Out Cold, part four. Written by Steve Orlando, art by Vincenzo Caruto, colors by Hava Tartaglio with Chris Sotomayor, letters by Travis Lanham, and design by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. This should be pretty quick. Uh, the cover here alludes to the old Spider-Man as Amazing Friends cartoon, which I should have been right in the target demo for that, but... It must have aired against some other cartoon on another station I like better because I don't think I ever watched it. Are you, are you a big fan of this this cartoon that keeps getting referenced these days in Marvel or Marvel Comics? No, I. <laughs> yeah, I'm aware of it just because we've been beaten over the head, but it, I don't yeah, know why it, there's such between Firestar and Iceman. Yeah, I don't know. Some people really, really loved it. I mean, I think it's probably just a generational thing, right? It probably resonates with a younger demographic. Yeah, well, it came out. In like the eighties, I think. So it should have been something that was hits a nostalgia button for me, but I just missed it. So it just that's a part of the reason it doesn't really do much for me. So this issue was a lot like every other issue of this series. Orcus wants to get Bobby. Orcus threatens somebody that they know Bobby will want to protect. Bobby comes out to protect that threatened person, and Bobby wins just before losing the ability to keep himself together. So in this issue, the threatened party is a human mutate named Chantal. Orcus has their houndified mutant team threaten her. Bobby shows up, and Bobby defeats the threat pretty much effortlessly. <laughs> now, some differences. This is a team-up issue where Bobby teams up with Spidey, original recipe. Uh, we don't get the usual bookend scenes with Romeo back at the Fortress of Isitude. Instead, we get a single opening page of an unseen person outside the fortress, obviously Mr. Clean, and then two ending pages with Bobby arriving back at the fortress, finding Mr. Clean sitting in the ice throne, and Romeo bleeding on the ground, looking dead, but is obviously not really dead. So we're not going to go through the beat by beat on this one. It'll be the same as every other issue. But a, cu a couple of things here I think are worth discussing. So Chantal, she says that she's a 
never saying this right, Genosian or Genosian human mutate. And her power is that she doesn't get tired. She's not the most exciting power to illustrate in a comic book. Uh, I can't find a reference to her existing before this issue, so I, I think she's a brand new Steve Orlando creation. But the other things she says do situate her within the Marvel Universe. So a mutate, meaning that she's a regular human without an X gene, exposed to something that gave her superhuman powers. You know, think Hulk with gamma radiation, Spidey with the radioactive spider bite, Cap with super soldier serum. They're all mutates. She got a tattoo. Yeah. So if she's a Gnosian mutate, that means she was created by the gene engineer, David Moreau. Remember him? The man with the peacock tattoo was a clone of that character. Did that whole thing back in X-Force. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of some cool connections. Steve Orlando does love to go back through the uh, the Marvel wiki and, and make these connections. And this is a decent one. The hounds. The hounds we see sent after Chantal are Feral, Fatal, and Reaper which is a pretty cool connection to the current Uncanny Spider-Man book. Now, in that title, we see that Vulture is working for Orcus, and it was revealed last issue that he's using bits of Warlock's techno-organic form to kind of transform and brainwash captive mutants into hunting other mutants for Orcus. There's no footnote sending people to Uncanny Spider-Man, which I think there should be, but the situation is kind of explained in the scene between Vulture and Pequod. You see the two don't really get along, and they're kind of fighting for power and influence within Orcus, which I, I, I enjoy this. I like seeing why Orcus isn't really functioning at peak efficiency here. There's some infighting among this group once they think, oh, they think they've won. So that was kind of cool. Now, the main fight of this book is pretty decent, nothing we haven't seen before, and Iceman never seems to be in any real danger. I mean, okay, we do see him get his, his head cut off. Again, we knew that wasn't going to slow him down. He's, he made ice. Uh, Bobby does show off his Omega-level powers. The book doesn't pretend that these sea listers are a real threat to him, which is something I complained about last issue, so I have to give it credit here. Always nice having Spidey around, even if I don't think Steve Orlando's version of Spidey banter is all that great. No, it's not clever at all. I was like, this is just about as good as Nightcrawler and trying to pretend to be this, him. There's this weird scene towards the end where Spidey is acting kind of subservient to Iceman, almost like he's looking to him as a mentor. Which I I don't I mean see them as as buddies as pals as you know ribbing each other fighting together I don't see Spidey asking Bobby for advice for anything that didn't make any sense to me that panel is weird too just art wise it's like two panels of Spider Man's mouth like just open looking aghast I was really confused by that what page are you on that's a good question um uh, probably eighteen yeah I see it where he's holding that uh, bagel sandwich yeah and they make a joke about the don't toast your bagel thing but mm -hmm. they're like talking and then it's just like mouth <laughs> mouth agape like in two different panels which makes no sense to me but by the way for the record I am on, on bagel toasting if it's a super fresh still warm bagel yeah don't toast it but if it's cooled down toast that bagel it'll be better trust me. <laughs> Reggie's rolling in his grave. <laughs> oh, Reggie. So it's it's nice having Spidey around. Uh, it's cool seeing the hounds. We're finally going to get that long-awaited fight at the fortress to save Romeo that's been hinted at for this whole book. And this whole book really could have been three-issue mini, could have been an extended one-shot for that matter. Uh, we didn't need all this. Uh, we do get a love letter from Bobby to Romeo as a data page. If that had been the other way around, a letter from Romeo to Bobby, that would make me think, oh, that's a death flag. Romeo is really going to die, but he's not. So not a horrible issue, not great, not horrible, just 
90% a repeat of things we've seen before, some cool tie-ins that I enjoyed, strong art. And if you're already a big fan of Bobby, seeing him do his Iceman thing, you'll get more out of it than I did. I just find it kind of unnecessary, and I'll give it a, a 6 out of 10. Yeah, that's where I'm at, 6. Doesn't offend me, but it just it was maybe a five-minute read. <laughs> I just yeah, wasn't very, invested very in it. Very straightforward. You know what's going to happen. The thing happens, and you're done with it. And I still just – I look at Mr. Clean, and I'm like, okay, this isn't that intimidating because we already saw this guy get his butt kicked. Like, <laughs> And his name just makes me think of the floor cleaning commercials, so the bald guy with the earring. And I – that's that's not intimidating. Now, moving right on to another book that's a little less straightforward. This is Jean Grey, number four of four, Ashes to Ashes, written by Louise Simonson, art by Bernard Chang, colors by Marcella Maiolo, letters by Ariana Mayer, and designed just by Jay Bowen. Now, some folks online seem to think that this issue is the best thing since sliced bacon. I must be seeing something I didn't. I thought this issue was kind of nonsense. Just page after page of Jean Grey arguing with herself. The I think the joke I made on Slack was it reminded me of those perfume commercials back in the 80s, where it was just supposed to be all arty and black and white and people saying deep, meaningful things, but it was just, just nonsense. It, it just recaps the previous three issues to herself, three issues that were already mostly recapped. That's 16 pages of that. So then we get two pages of Jean reconciling with the manifestation of the Phoenix Force. The Phoenix says the reason it didn't help Jean out at the gala was that it was dead at the time, stuck here in the white-hot room. Isn't Echo still running around with the Phoenix Force on the Avengers side of things? Or has that gone away? I, I'm really curious how that, that ties in or if people just ignore it. Any idea? I think that Echo has given up the Phoenix Force. I don't know how, but that was the sense I've gotten. Or maybe you can share it. Check that out. Maybe you can share it because the Phoenix Five, right? Back in Avengers vs. X-Men, they they had shared parts of it. So maybe that's what's going on here. Perhaps. But but if the Phoenix isn't trapped in the white hot room, then it, this explanation doesn't work. And anyway. So I think the idea here is that in the preceding 3.75 issues, where Gene tested out different choices and everything went to hell anyway, that seems to be the Phoenix Force telling Gene that her instinctive choices, the choices she actually made the first time around, those were the right choices. Even though they seemed like everything went to hell, never mind the billions of dead asparagus people, uh, it's more important that Gene's choices here be validated. So now Gene and the Phoenix are friends again. I guess that's the big outcome of this series, is that Gene has the Phoenix powers, I think. <laughs> so so think at the too. end, we return to that scene in Immortal X-Men 16, the one where Hope and Exodus are fighting a fake apocalypse, where they unexpectedly see Jean Grey in the desert. In this view of that same scene, Jean Grey's there twice. Once in the physical form that Hope sees, or at least as physical as anyone can be in the White Hot Room, the one who's babbling semi-incoherently. And then there's a ghostly phoenix bearing of the mind gene who is somewhat more rational. This gene moves close to Hope so that Hope can borrow her phoenix power. We don't get to see Hope use this power to defeat the fake apocalypse. Presumably, we'll see that next week in Immortal. And and there it is. Four issues for Jean to find out that she was perfect all along and to have her make friends with the phoenix again. <laughs> is, is that all that happened here? Yeah, I didn't get anything more than that. Yeah. So, Gene Gray, fanboys and fangirls, you might love the series. I think I would have been better off just reading Immortal X-Men and seeing this story from that vantage point. I don't really have anything else to say about this book. You, you have anything you think we should add here? No. I, I, well, two things I'll say. I think it was pretty hilarious that this whole issue is just like 
the Phoenix telling her, oh yeah, all that stuff that happened didn't really happen. It's like, okay, we I kind of figured that out when it kept happening, right? Like, you don't yeah. need to tell me these like unreconcilable things, you know, are all, you know, we have two things that happen and they couldn't coexist in the same universe that they didn't happen, right? Like, I, I got that. And then the, the second thing is what you're talking about, like, there being like, the, the White Hot Rumor is already sort of like this ghost realm, right? So, it's really weird to me to think that there's like a sub sub realm within the yeah yeah, within the white hot room like you could be a ghost within the white hot room and you could be physically material within the white hot room it's just i mean fine because you could do anything in that area but it's just phoenix and white hot room it's like the speed force just say the words and you don't have to explain anything oh it's it's the white hot room gotcha sure so it just kind of made it worse it made the area even more convoluted and it was already kind of convoluted so I'm not a big fan of it, that. it's cool seeing bernard chang just draw all these different versions of gene but you know, a poster could have done that. I didn't need four issues of it. So yeah, uh, maybe I'm just a dummy. Maybe I'm missing all these deep, meaningful stuff because I haven't read every Jean Grey issue that's ever been written. But for me, this was a four out of 10, just kind of a waste of time. Uh, the art's better than a four, so I'll go to five, but it's kind of forgettable. Now it's time to talk about Alpha Flight, number four of five, Divided We Stand, part four. Written by Ed Brisson, art by Scott Godleski, Colors by Matt Miller, letters by Travis Lanham, designed by Tom Muller, with Jay Bowen. I had a good time with this issue. I'm, I'm enjoying this, uh, this series. Uh, we have a few different strands here that come together in the end, which I, I always like when we see these multiple things happening, and they all kind of come together like, like the end of a Seinfeld episode or something. It's not a reference I expected to make for Alpha Flight, but here we are. So the first strand is this guy, Laurent. He's a mutant with the mutant name of Argent who was rescued by Alpha Flight in the first issue and kept safe in Krakoa North, way up there in northern Manitoba. And he is just sick and tired of all this orcas crap. Tired of running, tired of hiding. So he leaves. And I'm sure that won't cause any problems for anybody. Right, Ruben? This is just, he's just going to walk away and, and he's out. Sure? Of course. So he grabs a bit of food. He doesn't grab a flashlight. That's a mistake. He uses his liquid metal power to pop open a door, walk on out. I don't know where he thinks he's going because he has no visible means of transportation and he's still way up there in the aforementioned northern Manitoba. A good thing this story takes place in the week and a half that it's not winter up there. And I like this plot point a lot. This is set up. It was motivated. We've met this character. We know what he's going through. And the idea that he'd be able to just, you know, use a sneaky mutant power and and walk away, it's not the smart thing to do, but I completely buy that he would do it. You, uh, You on board there? Yeah, no, I agree. We've kind of had this hinted at for long enough that didn't surprise me that he did it. Yeah, we, we speculated last issue that this might be what he did. Uh, speaking of speculation, uh, let's talk about Nemesis. We learned at the end of the last issue that the character playing the Nemesis role in this book was Heather. And we didn't know what Guardian knew about that. And it turns out that he had no idea it was his wife, girlfriend, ex-wife. I don't know what their relationship is now, but this, this he had no idea it was Heather. This woman who's super, super tight with him, super close to him. Uh, what we don't learn is exactly how it came about that Heather took on the role of Nemesis. I, I'd like to see a scene about, oh, her thinking somebody needs to do this. We need transportation. I'm the only one. I, I just want to see how that happened. I don't think we're going to get any, but I'd like to see it. We do get a data page to tell us more about the Onyx sword that Nemesis uses. It's made of Prometheum, which is essentially anti-mysterium, right? It's super magical as opposed to the super super anti-magical mysterium. 
It gives teleportation and other powers to its wielder, but at the price of having to be fed life force. Now, prior nemesises have generally been dead, resurrected by the Onyx Sword, and they were fed the life force of their wielder's enemies. But since Heather is alive and not so much out there killing people, it's been taking life from her directly. I guess she should have read the Surgeon General's warning on the side of the sword, and that explains why she's so worn out. Uh, what do you what do you think of uh, Heather as nemesis? I know you're not a you don't have a long history of uh, Alpha Flight <laughs> reading here. Yeah, no, it's, it, I have zero history with this. It, it's all fine. It, it makes sense. I thought the sword sounded cool and reminded me of the Black Knight sword a little bit. Yeah, it, it does make me want to go and and read some of the other old nemesis stories and, and see how it functioned there. So another strand is Department H. They're sending box sentinels to this site. So the mutant side of Alpha Flight grabs Nemesis and gets the heck out of there to the north, leaving the non-mutant double agent side to explain things. Uh, the, ostensible, the ostensible captive feedback, he's sticking around, and that should placate Department H for now and allow the double agent bit to go on a bit longer. At some point, this has to break down, right? That this whole charade, masquerade, has to be has to be discovered. That, that'll be interesting. That'll be so on the way back to Department H headquarters, the box sentinels peel off and go somewhere else. Alpha Flight thinks, oh, this means they found where Nemesis and the mutants are holed up, which would be bad, uh, but it turns out it's even worse. This is where Lawrence's actions bite Alpha Flight right in their Canadian rear ends. By leaving the door to Krakoa North open, all the way up there in northern Manitoba, it somehow allowed a signal to escape, I guess, so that Department H now knows where Krakoa North is. And there's a one word here that really got my attention. The director, Doiron, she says, finally. So what do you think she knew? What did she suspect? What was she looking for? Did she Does she know there's a, a Krakoa North or like a, a hideout for mutants? Does she suspect that Alpha Flight is playing her? What do you think she knows? I think she just thought there was a spot somewhere in Canada where all the mutants were headed off to. I could be. I'm curious what exactly she suspected, how long she's been suspecting it. Is she going to be surprised when she finds out that Guardian and crew are not really loyal? But anyway, the box sentinels have arrived at Krakoa North. Alpha Flight, not there to defend it. There's The only mutants there are the ones who needed protecting. So, hmm, kind of rough spot for them. Next issue will be the conclusion. So yeah, I, I like this issue a lot. There's not a whole lot to talk about. Uh, it's a straightforward, comic booky kind of plot with some twists and turns that are all nicely motivated by the characters. Uh, the art is on the bright and cartoony side. Again, works works really well with the classic comic book kind of plots. Kind of a minor story. No offense to Canada, but, you know, a fun one. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to reading the conclusion. I, I give this a, a solid 8 out of 10. It was my favorite book of the week. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I didn't like it that much, but you know what? I did come around to thinking this is better than I've been giving it credit. So, it's just a 7 for me. But I... I thought the character beats were good. I liked the whole, you know, hey, we detected something and the uh, Fang and that group were like, oh, yeah, they're coming to find us. And then, nope, they went past them and straight to that other location. I thought that was yeah, pretty that cool. Was, that was a well-hidden little 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 twist because we all thought, oh, sure, that's where they're headed off to. But, oh, yeah, that was, that was nice. But, yeah, less to talk about. It's certainly less, like, meat, less substance than something like Children of the Vault, which has all these connections and references and 
little metaphors. This is just a fun comic book story. But I think I think a well-made. Well, that's all I have to say about Alpha Flight, other than, uh, yeah, folks should read it. Moving on to Dark X-Men, number four of five, Up Jump the Devil. Written by Steve Fox, art by Jonas Scharf, colors by Frank Martin, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller, and Jay Bowen. Now, this book is not so bright and cartoony. Last issue's cliffhanger left off with a panel of Ben Riley, a.k.a. Chasm. Now, this issue's cover prominently features an image of Ben Riley, a.k.a. Chasm. So this book, this issue is going to be all about Ben Riley, a.k.a. Chasm, right? He's going to be the main character? Eh, let's see. Uh, so the issue starts off with a really nice bit of recap. I like the way this was done. Presented to us as a conversation between Gambit, who's on this team, and his wife, Rogue, who's on the Uncanny Avengers team. It's nice to be reminded that these two are still together, even though right now they're members of different teams and different books. Rogue doesn't want her hubby hanging around with the Goblin Queen, doing dangerous stuff. But Gambit, who the captions remind us is not so used to being, quote, the most honorable, responsible person in the room, which I thought was a nice little reminder, he thinks that his weirdo team is is doing some good. What did you think of the relationship as displayed here between these two? Yeah, it was refreshing. I was like, this is the Rogue and Gamut I remember, right? Like, they both they both were not at all times heroic characters. They have a strong respect and love for each other and concern for each other. And um, they're doing different things, right? They're looking out for each other. So I was like, this is great. I also liked how Rogue was suggesting, like, hey, I'm going to, you know, ask and see if we can get you on the Avengers so you can get off this Dark X-Men team. <laughs> Yeah, but, but Rogue doesn't, uh, excuse me, Gambit doesn't want to do that. I get confused because Gambit himself is often described as being a rogue. So it just confuses me. But, uh, we, we get some panels here with a footnote pointing us towards Uncanny Spider-Man for, quote, the other side of this beatdown. And I've read all of Uncanny Spider-Man so far and I don't recognize any of this. So I'm guessing this comes from Uncanny Spider-Man number four. Yeah, that series gotta... was kind of delayed up front. So I'm thinking they just got out of sequence here. Yeah, that's what I think happened. Um, yeah, it's, it's fine. The upshot is the Dark X-Men did something good between the issues. That's nice. I, I would like to know what that is, but that's something I'll see when Uncanny 4 comes out. So Gambit tells Rogue and reminds us about some things going on with his team members. Uh, Azazel is holding something over M-Plate's head. We get some real, some actual more details here with Azazel referring to, quote, a family contract. Uh, M-Plate is a member of the St. Croix family along with siblings Monet, who's also on Uncanny Avengers, and the M-Twins, who I don't think are really around right now. Uh, gross Weird Zero, still being all weird and gross, inhabiting that Logan bot like a hermit crab. Faint, that former child of the Atom, she's being mentored by Maddie, which is concerning all on its own to have her for being the mentor, right? We know Maddie is kind of reformed, she's trying to do better, but she's still super creepy and super twisted. So Yeah, she's still a goblin queen. Goblin Queen light, right? Like she's dealing with demons and she's trying to be Jean Grey. She's trying to be Charles Xavier, but it's, she's not. She doesn't really have that skill set, as uh, as we say. So, well, really has me more interested in Faint than I've ever been. Just seeing how this kind of innocent, naive character who's now seen some things to make her less naive, but she's still brand new at this mutant thing, and to have her mentored by by Madeline. Yeah, be, she could, seems could to like bad. Madeline, which is <laughs> pretty scary <laughs> of all the people to buddy up to. Yeah, but. when you when you see a friend or if you're older and you have kids and you see one of your kids kind of start to idolize a figure and you go, oh, really? Do you want to – is that the person you should be you know, put on your wall? Well, we'll see what happens there. So 
now we see Havoc, and, and Havoc is falling apart. That's exactly what they say. We see him being stitched up by demons, looking a bit Frankenstein-y. We don't get a lot from him in this issue. I presume his plot point is going to culminate next issue. He's he's not doing well. Yeah, I didn't think he was this injured, so it's kind of interesting. Obviously, whatever spell she used to help with the slit throat is as consequences. Yeah, it's less, let's hold him together so he can heal up. You know, if this was you know, Wolverine or somebody, you'd know, always oh, got this healing factor. He's going to be fine as long as you kind of keep him together. Yeah, not so much with Havoc. He's something bad is going to happen with him. Uh, so at the end of the discussion, Ro gets called back to her other team and she takes off. Really great scene. Natural bit of recap that gave us some new information along the way. Super well executed. Just classic comic book writing. Yeah, you didn't have Rogue talking down on Gambit about how he's such a f off, right? Like, God, that <laughs> that Rogue and Gambit series is still That's just like, enough. yeah, it was just bad. I wish I hadn't read it. It's it's good to see Gambit acting like a responsible. I mean, his version of responsible, but still not being just a goofball. So now we get a quick check in with our kind of generic baddies. It seems like the multiversal Goblin Queen is, is running the show here, which that probably shouldn't be allowed, right? It should be Orcus who use her as an asset, but she has she has taken over. Those two agents whose names I'm never going to recall, they really seem to be working for her. I think it's more like she said, I need to get this thing out of the, out of the prison, right? She talks about how she's going to convince Chasm to join them. And so I think they're more tolerating her than working for her. They're just kind of following her to see what she's I, I, I suggested. I think that she is acting, maybe she's manipulating them because she's going after Madeline because she wants to be the top goblin queen around. I don't think she's really interested in forwarding Orcus's interests. Correct. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, they, I don't know. I, they, maybe they're stupid and <laughs> don't realize that, but I agree. Her agenda is not theirs. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, she's going to be using another mutant held by Orcus to get into the Limbo Embassy, and we'll see shortly, very shortly, if this works out. So, here we are right back outside the Limbo Embassy as Gambit returns from his semi-date. Uh, Maddie, Havoc, and Zero also right there. Another character runs in, apparently seeking sanctuary. This is Neil Steiger, a.k.a. Abyss, who, as we know... He can replicate the Pacific Northwest. That's his, his <laughs> ability. He has a complicated history. He's been around before. Azazel is his dad, making him Nightcrawler's half-brother, at least until the next retcon in like a month. His powers have come and gone over the years. Empowered, depowered, I guess repowered. Because right now he's a lot like Cloak of Cloak and Dad. Uh, that's why Maddie sent him here as an abyss bomb to pull the aforementioned Gambit, Maddie, Havoc, and Zero into that cold, lifeless dimension, which is a <laughs> fun Seattle. Beach. It's Seattle. Oh, no, Seattle. <laughs> At least we have coffee. I wish it wasn't true. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it's a nice page turn, some pretty good art. And yeah, that's a cool way to get these heavy hitters out of the way so that Goblin Queen and her Orcus handlers can just mop up the rest. She gets the drop on some of the embassy residents because they think she's Madeline, which she kind of is. She's from the other dimension. She and her Banff demon, or Banff dragon, kill and maim a whole lot of folks, again with some even better art. This art looks great here. That uh, I mean, this is where Dark X-Men really is dark, and the parental advisory on the cover gets fully earned. So this is, this is pretty hardcore. We said that uh, Cable and Bishop were hardcore in what they were going to do. 
this book is hardcore and what it's willing to show us on panel. So the Orcus duo go directly to recruit Ben, you know, Chasm, the guy on the cover. He just tells them, you know, I'm, I'm not interested. Goes back into his cell. I like <laughs> Which that. Which made me laugh. Yeah, that it made me funny. laugh a lot. Yep. And also, he's a Spider-Man clone, right? Like, Ben Riley. he might have issues with heroes, and he talks about how, you know, he wants to get his revenge for being imprisoned. But there is some element of him that he's not just a, you know, anti-mutant fascist. And he tells them that, right? Yeah. Which I thought was cool. He's out for revenge against particular mutants who screwed him over, in his mind, helped lock him up here. Not after mutant kind in general. So... Do you think he's going to be back in the fifth and final issue, or do you think his role in the story is done? I think he'll be back. I still think he'll, he will see Madeline and decide that he wants to fight her. Maybe. I think it'll be funnier if he's just done. I think that would actually be hilarious. <laughs> they were trying to recruit him, and then he's like, nah. Yeah, though. It's just, nah, never mind. I'm just going to sit in my cell some more. Okay, so uh, let's, let's wrap this up. Uh, the, the battle continues. Maddie and company are rescued from that cold, lifeless dimension. By Azazel and his servant Emplate. Emplate rips the Orcus goons to bits. Gross. And Azazel, well, he coldly breaks his own son's friggin' neck, killing him. Yikes. This releases the characters trapped inside that pocket dimension, which Azazel may or may not have known would happen. It'd be worth a shot, right? What, what harm could it be to just snap your own kid's neck? Eh, why not? He is. Yeah, so... I- uh, when this group goes inside the embassy to investigate, they find that Orcus has completely won. Faint has been coerced into giving the Goblin Queen Maddie's spooky version of Cerebro, and that's where we leave it. The next and final issue looks like it's going to be a battle of, you know, Goblin Queen versus Goblin Queen, which this was always leading up to. So yeah, a pretty decent issue. Dark X-Men, I'm saying this a lot, it's not turning out to be important in the grand scheme of the Fall of X story, probably. But it's making me care about a bunch of characters. Sure, I think I it's... Go ahead. Yeah, a lot of characters I didn't know anything about, but their voices are coming through as distinct. And it seems like uh, the writer's been leveling up, right? I think he quite re- he realized maybe after the first issue, I have too many people on the team. So it was a good move to get Maggot off the team and um, avoid adding the Morlocks to the group, right? So you see the final page of you know the Dark X-Men show up and... It's a, I don't know, was it one, two, uh, six? Six characters? That's not too much. That's a manageable number. Yeah, and, and putting some, like, putting uh, Maggot who left, I mean, having Maggot leave the team was itself a good enough plot point for Maggot that I think it was worthwhile having Maggot around. So yeah, that was probably the he plan doesn't need along. to be part of this weird, right. <laughs> messed up group. And I want to say the Goblin Queen, you know, we didn't really go into the details because we're kind of hitting these other issues a little quicker, but the brutality of her fight is pretty intense like people are begging for mercy and offering to join her and she's just like kills them outright <laughs> which i was like oh man this is not a this is not a good character <laughs> which you know if you want to show a darker character than you know our madeline that they did a great job yeah doing we have that. characters dying left and right here and it's it's not like back in you know other parts of the story where oh they'll just be brought back next issue that's not really an option right now so these deaths are, are really scary. Uh, yeah, and this book makes me care about M-Plate. I have never cared about <laughs> M-Plate, but I really want to know what Azazel's got going on with him. So, to make me care about M-Plate, uh, the writer Steve Fox here is doing well. The, the art, as previously mentioned, appropriately dark and gory. Jonas Scharf and colorist Frank Martin, they know what book they're on. 
and they deliver the job that's called for. It, it looks really good in a really bad way, if you know what I mean. Yeah. If, if we're talking about future artists for, you know, the post Krakoa era, like it's another one I'd be happy to see get another book. Yeah. And Again, I, I don't know if I mean, we've only seen them work in this mode. I don't know if they could do something happy and funny, but for anything kind of dark and violent, they, they've, they've got that. He's doing Dead X-Men, right? That's the next thing. Uh, Dead X Men. I think that's Steve Fox. I'm not sure who the artist is on that. It could be the same. I'd I'd be fine. That'd be good. So downsides to this book. I mean, the Orcus duo, generic and forgettable. They just don't matter. They're really just an excuse to have the Goblin Goblin Queens opposing each other. I think. Uh, and that's really the only downside I can think of here. Uh, Now I really want to see what went on Uncanny Spider Man. I want to see how this story ends. Not the best Wall of X mini, far from the worst. I'm going to, well, I think I've talked myself up to an 8 out of 10 on this one. Yeah, that's exactly where I land on this, which is shocking, right? <laughs> a book with a bunch of characters we knew nothing about, and yeah, at this point, it's kind of satisfying. So, good work, Steve. Well done, yeah. What, what's going on with M-Plate? Why is he working for Azazel? Uh, we'll find out in a month. It but almost not- seems like Azazel was about to betray the whole team, too, right? Yeah, he was. He seemed to like considering which way which way is best for me to go. Do I save him or do yeah. I just get join out up here? with this new Goblin Queen? I think he realized that she wouldn't actually <laughs> let him join, and then he was like, "Okay, I guess I gotta." Yeah. He, he seems <laughs> completely, you know, selfishly motivated. He just thought that, well, my best bet. You know, she was this Goblin Queen was letting me hang out here in the embassy. I should probably help get her back. All right, on to our last book of the show. This is Uncanny Avengers number four of five. Unmasked, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Javier Garon, colors by Maury Hollowell, letters by Travis Lanham, and design by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So we did not really care for the previous issue, which was half Cap making a boring-ass speech and half Quicksilver and Penance coincidentally running into the Fenris twins at a perfume shop and then making out. With each other, not with the Fenris twins, that would have been even grosser. So let's see if we like this issue any better. It starts off with reporter Ben Urich confronting Dr. Stasis at Empire State University, uh, asking if Stasis wants to amend his statement that by the time Orcus arrived at the Hellfire Gala, all the humans were already dead. Stasis is surprised when Urich says that he has a witness, and that witness to the contrary is a human. Now, this refers to the very end of the prior issue when Captain America introduced Urich to Wilson Fisk. So that's what Urich says to Dr. Stasis, right? But then I don't understand this next page. Because Stasis contacts the fake Captain Krakoa to talk about what Ben Urich just says. But he tells the captain, quote, a reporter just asked me questions about you, about <laughs> your identity, and that is not what happened. I know. What's going was a page of dialogue cut for space and they didn't patch it up? What happened? I'm, yeah. I'm honestly confused as to how like page one and two of this or page two and three just don't connect. It could be Stasis trying to manipulate Captain Krakoa to go kill Ben Yurik, but it doesn't seem like he would need to manipulate him to yeah, do that's that, a, right? that's a very gen- generous reading. That's something Dr. Stasis would do, but to what end is he saying this? He seems like he's actually concerned about what he's saying. I couldn't get over the... I mean, you're hitting on a very problematic point of this story, and there's a lot of them, but I couldn't... Characterization-wise, I couldn't get over the fact that he was like, guest lecturing at a university like really dr stasis that's how you spend your free time like does not (laughs) seem the type that would have any interest in talking to grad students 
Yeah, he's. Tr- I could write it off as him trying to do PR for Orcus, get himself out there, but there's better ways to do that. And maybe he likes to brag about his scientific accomplishments. Yeah. I Plus see- the whole, maybe. like, you're a dude with a, <laughs> is that, is that a spade or a club. Oh, he's got the club. Yeah, dude with a club on your forehead, like, with ghostly white skin, you're just gonna, like, speak and people are cool with that. It, it, not the face of Orcus that I'd want to be putting forward. Yeah, literally not not the face you want to put forward, for sure. Uh, yeah, so next we see the Unity Squad attack the new MILF's headquarters at that old military base. And they found it by tracking the Avengers' ID cards that Quicksilver slipped onto the Fenris Twins' last issue. Where do you think Quicksilver put those ID cards exactly? I mean, again, a scene I'd like to see is to have the, scene, the twins the find art, those yeah. cards, go, Avengers' ID card. I think yeah. that'd be, uh, just see them all confused, that'd be fun to see, but... I think maybe Jerry Duggan had too much to put in this issue and had to cut bits out and didn't have room for, for the fun stuff. Uh, we just we don't see that. We just get the fight scene of the Uncanny Avengers, the, the Unity Squad attacking him. It's fine. Uh, Blob still thinks that Captain Krakoa is Cyclops in disguise and that he Blob thinks he's fighting for the good of mutant kind, which, you know, Blob's not the smartest. You'd think you'd wonder why Cyclops never takes off his mask, but oh well. Uh, the, the Fenris twins know otherwise, at least the lady half of the Fenris twins does, since she saw Captain Krakoa maskless and pantsless a couple issues ago. So it's, it's, it is nice to see the different motivations for the different members of the team. I, I, I enjoy that. This is another pretty violent fight, with Psylocke cutting off a forearm from each of the Fenris twins, and Quicksilver rushing in to bandage them before they presumably would have just let out and died there on the spot. I, more violence than I would have expected from a Captain America-led team. He seems to be completely okay with these super violent characters just chopping people up. Did, were you surprised by that? Yeah, the violence and, and Cap being okay with you know chopping uh-huh. arms off. They are Nazis, and Cap's a World War II guy. Maybe he'd He's be okay with that. He's on as being anti-Nazi. That's an excellent point. Well <laughs> Blob, who I guess is now starting to see the light a little bit, he tells Rogue that the fake captain said, the nuke that this team is looking for was meant for Dr. Stasis. And Rogue says, hey, that guy is giving a speech at Empire State University, and so the nuke must be there. And again, I don't follow this leap of logic, but the series has to wrap up next issue, so we don't have time to do any other detective work. He says, Dr. Stasis. She says, ESU. Boom. It's at ESU. I also love the whole, don't reveal yourself, mutants, um, or we'll kill a bunch of humans. And in this issue, they just show up and talk yeah, to him in the university. Forgotten. Not even a lip service. Uh, it's just embarrassing. <laughs> so, so Quicksilver and Rogue, they zoom off to ESU, where they do find a nuke right under the stage where Dr. Stasis was standing, which Stasis finds quite surprising. Uh, so, again, another thing I like is Captain Krakoa was created by Dr. Stasis and Orcus, but just like uh, Madeline Pryor, the other multiversal goblin queen last issue we talked about in Dark, he has different motivations, which is, is fine. I think that gives some texture here. Uh, so they find the nuke. Quicksilver says the nuke is booby-trapped, and they'll need Captain Krakoa on site in order to disarm it. Once again, I don't see how he makes this leap in logic. <laughs> right? Is he an expert in nuclear warhead booby-traps? I know he moves fast, but yeah. to be that specific, I can't disarm it. Again, I, I think stuff was stuffed into this issue, and explanations 
there wasn't any space for it. Uh, so meanwhile, Cap and the rest of the team zoom off to fight the fake Captain Krakoa who has come after Ben Gurren. Exactly how Cap predicted this is where that Cap Captain would be, I don't know, but the fight has to happen now. We're running out of time, so it happens. Captain Krakoa turns out to be pretty good at catching Cap's shield and throwing it around himself. Hmm. He uses it to incapacitate Black Widow, Psylocke, and Penance, and then to cut poor Deadpool in half at the waist, leaving the fight just Captain versus Captain, as it had to be. Uh, Cap breaks Krakoa's mask, revealing that, yeah, it's Hydra Cap, just as we all pretty much suspected. We tried to make up some other possibilities early on, but not, not the biggest reveal ever. The least exciting reveal ever, because it was so telecasted. Yeah, it was fairly, fairly obvious. So not a great issue. Better than the last one, I'd say. Still some leaps in logic, uh, especially that first one, the conversation between Stacy and Captain Krakoa, or the convenient, hey, I bet the nukes at the college thing. The art is the same as prior issues, which is to say, not to my taste. I don't. I can't say it's bad. It's just not my preferred aesthetic. So yeah, this should be a, a more important book. It has, you know, Avengers. It has mutants. It has. Captain Krakoa, who was this big thing, and as Dr. Stasis, doesn't feel as big as it should. Uh, uh, 5.8 out of 10. Not a great book. I agree with you 100%. It's sort of shocking to me how this book just feels like aftermath. Like every week he feels like he's got to, oh yeah, I got to write something for this story. Let me make up some stuff. But it feels really dialed in. Yeah, we, we like a lot of what Jerry Duggan's been doing in X-Men and in Iron Man. So, yeah, this book, maybe he doesn't have that much time and energy devoted to this particular title, which is a shame. Well, that was all our books this week. Uh, next week, we have a little bit of a lighter schedule. Only, is it a semi-plethora if there's only three? Uh, we have Invincible Iron Man number 12, which looks to be about Riri and her Mandarin rings. Maybe not as X-related as Iron Man has tended to be recently. We'll see. Uh, we have Immortal X-Men number 17 with Jean Grey on the cover. That should be big. And we have Wolverine number 30, continuing his team-up arc, this time with Black Panther. Uh, so I do have some recommended reading uh, for your Thanksgiving week if you're sitting around digesting turkey and you want to look at some comic books. What I'm going to be reading, I haven't read it yet, is Uncanny X-Men issues 428 to 434. This is an arc called The Draco, or possibly The Draco, and it's about Mystique and a Zazzle, and it's the story of Nightcrawler's parentage. Now, this is probably all going to be messed with and retconned to Hex real soon in that X-Men Blue Origins one-shot coming up, but I figure before that happens, I should actually go and learn what the current story is before Marvel changes it. So that's Uncanny X-Men, issues 428 to 434. And that's all I have to say this week. Uh, Ruben, do you have any, any Thanksgiving words of wisdom that people can, can use this, this week? <laughs> well, they should probably read more X-Men comics, right? Indeed. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.